A new article on the BMJ.com discusses an approach to diagnosing COPD in primary care. I'm Helen MacDonald, Assistant Editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined by one of its authors, Francesca Conway, Academic Foundation Year 2 Doctor at Imperial College London. Francesca, can you start by telling us what it was about this topic of COPD um, that made you want to write specifically about the diagnosis and how to do that? Yeah, so we identified COPD as, as an area which is very common but remains very underdiagnosed. It contributes to a significant portion of mortality and is predicted by the WHO to be the third leading cause of death worldwide by 2013. So we wanted to focus in on it and see if there was anything that we could do to help healthcare professionals, particularly those working in primary care, to diagnose it at an earlier stage and that would then lead to patients getting the treatment earlier. Mm. And what's the difficulty of making the diagnosis in primary care? What, what's causing the confusion or the delay? So I think there's several factors ranging from patient factors and healthcare professional factors. So from a patient perspective, they often attribute their symptoms to their smoking or to other causes. They think it's a chest infection from the winter and they often present late to the GP. And from a healthcare professional perspective, there's a lot of different guidelines to use and they're frequently being updated. It can be difficult for GPs to keep on top of all of the evidence. So we wanted to try to make it clear and simple as to what the diagnostic criteria were to help with the diagnostic process. And you give at the start of your article a scenario of a 55-year-old man who's a smoker. He had some chest infections last year and he's now coming to see you with a cough that has been going on for about nine months and he's feeling breathless climbing up the stairs. So what, if you're sitting there as the GP, what's going through your mind and what differential diagnoses are you trying to sort out? So because his symptoms are quite general, he's otherwise pretty fit and well, but he has been smoking for a while. Often people hone in on the here and the now, and they may diagnose a respiratory tract infection in the acute setting. The patient may then leave the GP surgery and not return back until they come another time. So it's just a matter of having a lower threshold for thinking, well, actually, is there something else going on here? Is there an underlying problem, such as COPD, which might be accounting for his symptoms? And on your tour through the guidelines, what are the symptoms that should be raising our suspicions um, that COPD could be a could be the culprit so the current guidelines at the moment are suggesting that we consider any patient that's over the age of 35 that's presenting with dyspnea chronic cough chronic sputum wheeze or frequent winter bronchitis with a presence of a COPD risk factor the COPD risk factors in the UK is predominantly smoking but we also need to be thinking about passive smoking any smoke from home cooking or heating fuels any occupational exposure to dust and chemicals, and a family history of ALF1 antitrypsin deficiency. So what are the most helpful questions to ask as you start to explore the diagnosis, do you think? So we've tried to give examples of which questions and the phrasing which might be helpful to GPs. Um, So focusing in on, firstly, the symptoms themselves, and then trying to establish the onset of the symptoms, trying to establish what other diagnoses that patient may have and the comorbidities, considering what medications they're on, 
And then trying to take a holistic approach and, and asking them about the impact that the symptoms are having on their life. For example, how are their symptoms affecting their daily activities? Is there anything that they can no longer do because their breathing stops them from doing it? Sort of a more holistic approach. So looking at these, the list of questions and symptoms to explore, what do you think the, the most positively predictive symptoms are going to be of that bunch or the most negatively predictive where if something else crops up you're going to dismiss the diagnosis as less likely? Mm, I think that's quite difficult. I don't think that there's one symptom which you could diagnose it from and, and similarly I don't think that there's any one symptom which if present you would exclude the diagnosis. I think just taking a systematic approach, asking questions about orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, palpitations might help point you if, if those are present, may help point you towards more of a cardiac diagnosis. Similarly, if they're um, expressing sim uh, symptoms or rather atopic diseases, you may start to think more down the asthma route. But I think it's overall sort of a full assessment, including with the examination as well, to try to get to the diagnosis. Mm. Tell, tell us a bit more about the examination and how that can help. So the examination can be normal and often is up until the COPD gets quite late on. Um, but COPD is a multi-systemic disorder and doesn't just just affect the respiratory system. So assessing from head to toe, look for signs of muscle wasting and recording the BMI is useful because we then have that as a baseline measurement when we come back to reassess them later. Looking to check whether the patient's overloaded or euvolemic, listening to the heart sounds for any evidence of heart failure. And then the typical symptoms of COPD itself would be the chest hyperinflation with hyperresonant percussion. We may detect some globally reduced breath sounds. Any signs of crackles or wheeze may indicate a superimposed infection. Okay. So assuming that you're in this situation, seeing this man, perhaps you've got some of those questions um, that he's answered yes to and there's not much suggestion that there's a cardiac cause for what's going on. There's no real um, history to suggest asthma and his examination hasn't yielded all that much. How are you going to move the situation forward to, to consider whether COPD's there? So the next thing to do would be to do general tests starting with blood tests, look look at the full blood count, check for signs of anemia, do a chest radiograph to exclude any other pathology. But the gold standard for making the diagnosis itself will be to explain to the patient that they need to have spirometry and the diagnosis will be confirmed if the post bronchodilator spirometry gives an FEV1 to FVC ratio of less than 0.7. So you're suggesting that you've got an obstructive pattern of lung dysfunction going on. Exactly. Um, and how important is the is the bronchodilator element in there? So the, it's used um, post-bronchodilator spirometry because that's been the best validated measure and there's the best evidence for that. Okay. Between the guidelines, in terms of how you make the diagnosis, was there any difference between the guidelines that seemed in, sort of clinically important? We found that there was a discrepancy between the age at which the guidelines suggested we start to think about COPD. NICE guidelines suggest considering the diagnosis at the age of 35 and above, whereas GOLD suggest using the cutoff of age 40. 
previously before the current guidelines were produced, there was some confusion between the guidelines about the different spirometry values for defining and classifying the severity of the airflow obstruction. But the latest NICE guidelines now agree with the other international guidelines. So they're in keeping with the gold American Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society guidelines. And in terms of the classification of how severe the disease is, how likely is that then to impact on what you would do for that patient, how you would manage them? Um, If you had a high clinical suspicion that the patient had severe COPD at the time of diagnosis, um, then according to the guidelines, you ought to be thinking about referring them sooner rather than later. So, Francesca, as you were planning for this article, you did something which we've been beginning to ask authors to do more and more, which is to involve patients in the production of the article and to think about how the concerns and worries and feedback they might have on their experiences of healthcare might alter the way that we um, design our articles and the information that we include in there to try and address their needs better. Um, Tell us a bit about the work that you did with patients as you were producing this article. So we identified a list of patients from a GP register and invited them to come and have a conversation with us. Um, about what they felt was important from their initial diagnosis when they were told they had COPD. So we incorporated some of the comments from a patient perspective to try to make the article more patient-focused. We wanted to think, what does the patient want? What is important for us to tell the patient when we first discuss the diagnosis? And the patients came up with um, one box of five key points as to what was the most important. So their priorities were, the first one, take time. So they explained that when they were first told about the diagnosis, it came as quite a shock and they felt very taken aback. Um, So from that, we gathered that it would be useful for us to just explain things quite slowly, offer patients a follow-up appointment should they think of any further questions, and provide some written information which they could look at in their own time. The second uh, point which which they were concerned about was that the name chronic obstructive pulmonary disease sounds quite dramatic. It sounds quite scary to patients, especially if they've never heard of it before. So we wanted that to be something that GPs and healthcare professionals were aware of. Um, and advise that it might be useful to explain what that means in practical terms to the patient. Did you think of, amongst your group of authors, did you, did you have any tips on good ways of explaining that or phrasing it that patients would find less intimidating or scary? Yeah, so, so we, we thought the best way to explain it was to explain to the patients that it's the name for a group of conditions which can cause breathing difficulties and it occurs because the airways can become damaged or narrowed from the smoking. Um, And then in our article, we included a patient information leaflet, which might be useful for healthcare professionals to use, which explains with diagrams what COPD is and the management of it um, in a very patient-friendly sort of way. And what else did the patients want? They also wanted us to explain what will happen to them after they've received the diagnosis. So in terms of a practical perspective. So what will happen in terms of their follow-up? They wanted to know that they'll be seen yearly for annual reviews. They wanted to know whether they would need vaccinations. And they wanted to know what they could expect from the disease. They wanted to know would they have disease flares um, and how would that be treated. Um, they 
they also said that they wanted to be told about what they can do to help themselves. So we try to empower the patients and, and advise that we can encourage them to stop smoking and give them self-management advice to respond to infectious symptoms promptly. And then we feel like we're working in collaboration with the patients. And then finally, they wanted to be told about the treatment straight away. We discussed whether in the initial consultation this would be appropriate, but actually patient, the patients that I spoke to was actually very keen to, her, to hear about the treatment straight away, especially after having been told this is the diagnosis. They want to know what we can do about it to help them. It's quite interesting because that's an, to me, that seems like an awful lot of information to cover um, as as you're delivering that diagnosis. And it makes me wonder whether really for delivering that kind of a diagnosis, you need to be setting aside a little bit more than than what in the UK might be a, a standard 10 minute appointment slot. Because that's a, a great deal of information to get through um, in a short time. It might be worth touching, Francesca, just on in response to the patient's feedback that they wanted to know how they would be followed up, um, is it worth touching on which patients you're predominantly going to manage in primary care as opposed to which patients you might be thinking about referring up to secondary care? Um, who who are you thinking you might need to, to ask for help with? So anyone that there's uncertainty about the diagnosis, if we're not sure, then referral is always a, a good option. Um, in those that have severe disease, those with comorbidities like core pulmonale or those that, as you assess with time, they're, they're, you notice that they're having a rapidly t- deteriorating FEV1, um, they're a cohort of patients um, that you may need help with to support the management as opposed to the diagnosis. And then I think those that you need help with Um, sort of assessment for further management so those that you're wondering whether they need long-term oxygen therapy home nebulizers long-term steroids pulmonary rehab consideration for surgery um, those decisions are often made in secondary care as well and then the specific patient related factors which we touched on briefly earlier so those that have the family history of alpha alpha 1 antitrypsin deficiency those that are very young so typically under 40 um, and often patients may request to be referred to secondary care, and that's something to consider on an individual basis. Francesca, questions have been raised about whether we're under or over-diagnosing COPD in some groups. What can you say about that? So the concerns which have been raised are with regards to whether the fixed ratio FEV1 to FEC is appropriate at all. And the concerns are raised because the fixed ratio isn't taking into account any other factors from the patient, for example, their age or their sex. And they're worried that it may overdiagnose COPD in, in, in older men and underdiagnose COPD in younger women. So uh, we're aware of these concerns which have been raised. But for the moment, um, we, for the purpose of this article, are going to continue recommending the use of the current guidelines and we'll await to see whether newer guidelines take these concerns into account. You've been listening to Francesca Conway talking about the diagnosis of COPD in primary care. To find out more, the full article is now available on thebmj.com. <laughs>